0: Today we get to Psalm 34, and to be reminded that this is a, a highlight of the psalm. We were talking about highlighting the psalms, and this is a highlight of the psalm, and it's very unique that it would come on a day like today. I think most of you are aware that uh, Michelle's mom passed away this last Tuesday, last Thursday, excuse me, June 22nd, and uh, her dad is here today. You prayed for them last week when we were talking about that. And uh, Mimi went to be home with the Lord at 4.45 on Thursday, uh, surrounded by her family. And uh, Michelle and her dad and her sister put on a clinic on what it means to provide and to care. to, To fulfill your wedding vows in the most beautiful way. And to uphold the fifth commandment to honor your parents. It was a beautiful experience. Uh, to be a part of. We are saddened, but our worst day on Thursday at 4.45 became Mimi's best day, and so we're thankful for that and those beautiful songs to sing and to be reminded uh, of that. Well, this psalm is a psalm of wisdom and teaching. It was created by David in an acrostic for that very purpose. He used 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet to start each one of these verses, the 22 verses that you see. And that was done so that it would be an instrument of teaching, so that those who would read it would hear what he would think, be thinking and saying about God. This is one of 14 psalms that we have that gives us the historical setting behind the psalm. So many of them were not sure what the, what the setting was and why it was written. But this psalm tells us exactly. In the heading, it reminds us that it was given during the time, written during the time when David was over in Philistine territory and he was under great duress. It's 1 Samuel chapter 21, verses 10 through 15, and I wanna read that so that we kinda of get the background of why he wrote this particular Psalm. It says in 1 Samuel chapter 21, verses 10 through 15, David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. Now, we don't have the backstory there, do we? You remember that Saul was constantly after David trying to take his life. This went on for the better part of a decade. David had been deemed to be, he was gonna be the king. He killed Goliath and then Saul was jealous of him. So he was perpetually trying to kill him. On this occasion, David had had a visit with Jonathan. Jonathan confirmed that yes, his dad was trying to kill David and David fled. And he fled and he met the priest, Abimelech. And when he was there, He said, do you have anything to eat? He gave him the holy bread, and he said, do you have anything that I can use for a weapon? Because David had to flee in such haste that he didn't even have his sword or his spear. You recall the story that the priest, Limelech, gave him the sword of Goliath. He said, it's the only thing we have, and David said, there's no sword like it. And so he took it, and he fled, and he went to the area of Gath, the very hometown of of Goliath, and it says, and the servants of Achish said to him as David arrived, is not this David the king of the land? Did they not sing to one one another and dance, saying Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands? They're, They're asking the question, why in the world are we allowing this guy to live among us? David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, and interesting enough, you will find that in the, in the King James Version and in the ESV, it will say that he was sore afraid. Have you heard those words before from Luke chapter 2, verse 9? The angels were sore, I mean the shepherds were sore afraid of the angels. It says, So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let the spittle run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see, the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? See, David pretended that he was insane because he was sore afraid of what the Philistines would do to him, the slayer of Goliath, their hometown hero, until that particular day. And so David would write this psalm reflecting back on how God delivered him from that experience, and he would write Psalm 34. Psalm 34.3 is a life verse for Michelle and I. When we began to date seriously, when she began to date seriously, I was dating seriously the whole time. When when she finally began to date seriously, Psalm 34.3, glorify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. You've heard me tell the story of our engagement. I opened, had a Bible that she opened up and had her name with presumptuously with my last name on, on the Bible, Michelle Fannin McHenry, and had her ring at Psalm 34.3 in the middle of the Bible. So this is a very important verse for us. And if you look at the King James and the ESV, it helps us to translate this verse maybe a little better. We say glorify the Lord with me and we say, okay, it's probably about worship and praising God. But the King James and the, the, the English Standard Version say magnify, and I think that's a very helpful translation. What happens when we magnify something? We take a closer look to see the details with greater clarity. You've done that with a, with a magnifying glass, even though you were burning ants or burning paper, you, you use that. You know what a magnifying glass does. You know about a a microscope. You know about a telescope that helps you to zoom in and see details with greater clarity. And that's what David is talking about. I was sitting there around all of these Philistines, and I had killed their hometown hero. And I thought they were going to kill me because I had Goliath's sword with me. So I began to act like a crazy man, and God delivered me in the midst of all of that. And so he says, I began to see God clearer in greater detail. And that's what he's saying. Magnify, take the time to look at God with greater clarity to see who he is. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. I was celebrating just the the experience that we had in worship together. Thank you for singing. Just as we sing together, because sometimes we don't feel like singing. I didn't really feel like singing today, just I kept on getting kind of choked up, but to hear your voices, just we do this together, and it helps one another on the journey. It says, one of the things I want to make a statement about in this particular psalm is that the Lord is near and he is sufficient. We're going to look at at a couple of verses here, and and I know this is going to be an inadequate look at Psalm 34, but I want us to look at several of the verses that just kind of give us a highlight to tell us that, first of all, the Lord is near and sufficient. Some of us need to hear that today. For some of us, God feels distant. For some of us, we don't feel like God is sufficient. And we need to see both of those in the psalm because David, in the midst of his travails, when he was standing next to the Philistine king, found that God was near and he was sufficient. It says, The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and he delivers them. The angel of the Lord the very best that God has. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him. So if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you are seeking to give all due reverence to him, surrendering your life to him, we have the promise that David says that even though I was in the enemy camp, God, the Lord's angel, was encamped around me. It's protection and it's provision. It's to say that God is always sufficient. Do you ever doubt that God is sufficient? with your particular needs? He's always good for someone else, but will he take care of you? What does it mean to have enough? The question was asked, which man is more content, the man with a million dollars or the man with 12 children? The man with 12 children because he doesn't want any more. That's contentment. (laughs) That's sufficiency. That is enough. And that's what David is saying here, is that the Lord is near he is close, and He is sufficient to meet our every need. Several years ago, we had a campaign here in which God just really surprised us all. If remember, it's Vision 640. And it was taken from Ephesians 640, which some of you are still trying to figure out. But there's a reason for that. But we, we used this as a campaign in which we sought to share the gospel, and, and we put a Bible on fifty thousand the doors of 50,000 homes throughout the Golden Triangle, and it even spread up into the Metroplex. Where did that come from? There's a man by the name of Jack Humphreys. He was uh, a man that retired at the age of 49 simply so he could invest his life as a volunteer with the Billy Graham Association. He traveled all over the world, training thousands and thousands of counselors for Billy Graham crusades. And he was always trying to lead people to Christ. He was ever the optimist, always hopeful that people would come to Christ, And when people would ask him, what is your favorite verse? He would say, it's Ephesians 6.40. Now, if they didn't know their Bible, they would say, I don't think I've heard that one. And then you go to Ephesians and you find that it only has 22 verses there, 24 verses. And they would look and he would say, I'm taking Ephesians 3.20 and doubling it. Ephesians 6.40. What does Ephesians 3.20 remind us? That God is able to do immeasurably more than we can think or ask or imagine. Now, that means that there is no yardstick to measure what God can do. Immeasurably more than we could ever imagine that God could do. God is capable of doing that. And that's what David is reminding us of. And he continues on by saying in verse 15, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to the cry. We live in such a distracted culture now, don't we? We're always distracted. We may be distracted even right now. And to know that in a distracted culture, we have verses like this that remind us that the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. It doesn't mean that occasionally, but they're on, they're fixed on the righteous, and His ears are attentive to the cry. We've all had that experience when we're talking to somebody when they're looking at their phone, and you begin to explain to them something, and they seem kind of distant. And if you're like me, I always like to go with that, and I can tell they're distant, and I said, so I just decided to go ahead and rob them. I pulled out my gun, and I robbed them. hmm hmm Then if they're not paying attention, I continue on with the story. Shot them. They deserved it. hmm We're distracted, aren't we? But here is a God that he's not distracted. He's not looking down on some screen. He's looking down on you. His ears and his eyes are attentive. I think about what was said in 2 Chronicles chapter 16, verse 9, the eyes of the Lord... Go throughout the whole earth in order to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. You know, I look at that verse and the the thing that speaks to me is if you want the eyes of the Lord to be looking at you, your heart has to be fully committed to him. That's the gist of what David is saying. In verse 18, you know, we come to a day like today for us, our, our family, and I know for others of you, you feel heartbroken. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. We love the way that that speaks to us, but we may not be interpreting it exactly right. We like to say that God is close to us when we have grief and sorrow, and there are plenty of scriptures that communicate that. But David is talking more about trust than trouble. Interesting enough, over in Dickinson, where um, Michelle's parents have lived for all of these years, for six decades, there is a strip club it's not a men's club it's a strip club it's a perverse club called Heartbreakers and one of the churches decades ago put up this enormous billboard right next to the strip club that says this verse Psalm 34 18 the Lord is close to the brokenhearted it's about trust in God when your heart is broken There are so many parallels to Psalm 34 that go with the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus opened with the words of the Sermon on the Mount to say, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed blessed are those whose hearts are broken over their sin, their self-sufficiency. And so they put their trust and dependence upon God. In the Psalm, it talks about the lion. The lion is so self-sufficient but it's to say that we are not. And blessed are we when we trust in God, when our heart is broken over our sinfulness and we lean into him. The righteous person may have many troubles, but the Lord delivers him from them all. And we say, I'm not sure that that would be my experience, that God has delivered me from them all. You're not done yet. Can I say today on June 25th, just three days removed from my mother-in-law's passing? This verse is true. She has been delivered from all of her troubles. Would you agree? What we call the worst day of our lives becomes the best day when we are delivered from all of our troubles and we stand in the very presence of God. And David speaks prophetically about something that he doesn't even yet understand. Again, friends, isn't it amazing that we can look at the Psalms and we are able to have greater insight than even those who wrote these words? Because he says he protects all his bones. He's thinking about being at Gath. He's thinking about Achish. He's thinking about taking Goliath's sword there. And he's thinking about his bones weren't broken. And then John would refer to that in John chapter 19, verse 36, referring to Jesus. He would quote this very passage of Scripture. That Jesus' bones were not broken. That he indeed laid down his life. They didn't have to break his legs to kill him. He laid it down for you and for me to deliver us from all of our troubles. Not in this life in this world you will have what tribulation troubles but be of good cheer i have overcome the world and we have a word to remember that we talked about it in psalm 22 to tell us, i have overcome what a great thought so as we think about our troubles and we pray and we don't hear the yes from god let me ask you a question would you rather god answer your prayers Your prayers, the way you ask ask them, would you rather God answer your prayers with yes or I have something better? I think I'd go for something better. God, this is what I picture to be the best. But if you have something better, I'm open to that. So we see that the Lord is near and he's sufficient. And for some of us today, we need to hear those very words. And then David continues on talking about his God who's delivered him, and he says, taste and see the Lord is good and take refuge in him. We're just going to look at two verses here. Verse 8, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. What does it mean to taste something? It means that you now have first-hand knowledge of what you've experienced. My mother-in-law, we call Mimi, She liked to fork fish. I'm not gonna be talking about this at her funeral, but she liked to fork fish. Whenever we would be sitting around the table and she would be looking around the table and she would notice something on your plate that attracted her appetite, she would take her fork and she kind of, what's that? She wasn't looking for information. She didn't want you to explain about how those Brussels sprouts were cooked and developed or what that cheesecake was like. She wasn't looking for second-hand information. She wanted to give first-hand information. And so we, would always, we learned early on, would you, would you like some? And then she, she would always like, she's just backing off a little bit. Well, maybe just a taste. So she'd stick her fork over there, fork fish, and she'd grab some of your food and she'd take it. She would taste it. That's what David is saying here. It's not about having secondhand information. You know about your parents' faith. You know about friends' faith. Yeah, your grandfather was a minister. I, imagine, I hope that there's not some idiot in my lineage down the line that says, yeah, my grandfather was a pastor. That won't get you anywhere. It's firsthand knowledge. It's tasting. Once you taste something, then you know what God is like, and that's what he's talking about here. See, Satan would have us stand at a distance from God and have second-hand and third-hand and fourth-hand and fifth-hand information to have this vague understanding of God. And David it says, no, taste and see that the Lord is good and take refuge. Move into the safe house of who he is and what he wants to provide. Satan's big lie is that obedience leads to misery if you obey God, it's going to be miserable. Have you ever thought that? I have. Can we just have an open confession? Have you ever thought that obeying God would lead to misery? Just once in your life, have you ever thought that? Would you just raise your hand? Just wow. You have more faith than me because there have been many times in my life where I said, that is not what I want to do. So let's just be honest one more time. Have any of you ever doubted just once and thought that maybe obeying God would lead to misery? A few more hands. I'm glad you're not voting on me being the pastor because it wouldn't be unanimous. (laughs) That's just the way it operates. We believe that being obedient is going to lead to misery and and it's the polar opposite of reality. And David was saying that when I'm obedient to God, it leads to great things. It was G.K. Chesterton who made this statement. The Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It's been found difficult and left untried for so many. And that's what David is saying, taste and see firsthand knowledge. Don't say, oh, I saw it over here, that church didn't have it right, and so I left that church, I left Christianity. What What a sad excuse. Interesting, that quote came from his book, What's Wrong With The World? That's what's wrong with the world is Christianity is not tried. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to blot out their name from the earth. That's what David is saying, is that we must taste and see that the Lord is good, because if we don't, we will face His wrath. So many people believe as if everything is okay. 2009, Greg Epstein, he, who is now the, the head chaplain at Harvard University, he wrote a book called Good without God. He's an atheist, and he's a head chaplain at Harvard. Even the New York Times said that seems to be a very unusual choice for that role, noting that Harvard was created to be a seminary to prepare ministers for ministry and to know that it's named after a Puritan minister, John Harvard. One of the students was talking about him, and he was saying, Greg's leadership isn't about theology. And for a lot of people, that's the idea. Life is not about theology. It's not about the ology of knowing God. It's about other ologies. Epstein would say, we don't look to God for answers. We are each other's answers. Many seem to believe that they're good without God. And what David is explaining is that's not true. Unless you taste firsthand and see that the Lord is good, you will face His wrath. God is opposed to the evil. The problem is we just don't think we're evil. Let's go over to the Ukraine. And I I know there, there are two sides to all these stories, okay? You go over there. Do we think that the invasion of Ukraine seems wrong? Okay, I'm not asking for any more votes on that. I mean, we just, we've, done, we've done the votes. We know. Do you think Putin thinks he's wrong? Do you think Putin thinks he's evil? No, not at all. He thinks he's doing what he's supposed to do. And that applies to us so many times as we think we're doing what we're supposed to do. And if we're in opposition to God, we are not where we need to be. And so David says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Take your refuge in him. So what is our point of refreshment this morning? That God can be trusted. I love this. God can be trusted even when life seems insane. You remember how this psalm was written? David pretended to be insane. Some of us feel like life is insane right now. And David says God can be trusted even when life feels like it's insane. You've heard me share about Bob Goff before. I've shared this particular illustration about it, but he's he's a, a, a Christian, an attorney, talks about depositions, and one of the things you've heard me say this so many times, that he's trained all of his clients who come in for a deposition, that they must sit there with their palms up, literally sitting in the seat with their backs of their hands on their thighs like this, because he has discovered, as he's watched the life of Jesus, that when you live with your palms up, he says this literally makes a difference in depositions, that people with their palms up are more accurate, they're less stressed, they're more likely to tell the truth, and will not exaggerate. And he insists that his clients keep their palms up throughout the entire deposition. And he says, I got that from Christ, because Christ lived with his palms up, and he's invited us as his followers to live with palms up to say, God, I'm not going to cling to anything in this life, even life itself, My palms up are to you, meaning I fully trust you. You can trust God even when life seems insane. It's been wisely noted that when proof is possible, faith is impossible. What a privilege for us to demonstrate faith. Friends, if you're here and you've never tasted to see that God is good, let me remind you that he is, that he loves you, and he's created you to have a relationship with him. But because of our sin, whether we realize we're sinners or not, the Bible talks about that. Even unintentional sin, the blindness of sin, because of our sinfulness, we are forever separated from God, and we will not know Him firsthand unless we fully surrender our life to Jesus Christ. Thankfully, Christ can make us right with God. Isn't it good to know? Wouldn't it be great for us as a church when we say this statement, to say amen, that we can be eternal, changed for all of eternity by humbly repenting of our sins and fully surrendering our life to Jesus Christ. Isn't that a great promise? That we can be changed. We don't have to live as crazy people. If you've never accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior, I want to lead us in a prayer and invite you to do that. And if you're a Christian and your life feels pretty insane right now, just remember God can be trusted even when it feels insane. God, thank you for that promise thank you for these words what a context to see that David yeah, David has no idea that he's one day going to be King David he was anointed but all that has happened is just seemingly bad stuff the king is chasing him everywhere his father-in-law trying to kill him he doesn't know things are going to turn out all right he doesn't know that he's going to write scripture that we read 3,000 years later He just knew in the moment when life seemed so insane that he could trust you. And I pray for those listening in this room and online that have never received you as Lord and Savior, that they wouldn't lean into their second and third and fourth hand knowledge about you, but they would taste and see that you are good, that they would invite you into their life with a prayer similar to this, Lord Jesus, I recognize that I'm a sinner in desperate need of your forgiveness. Please forgive me of all my sins and become the Lord and Savior of my life. I surrender to you all that I am and all that I have, and I will follow hard after you the remaining days of my one and only life. Oh, Lord, you are good. Help us to remember that and help us to continually taste day after day after day, not to live on the taste of last year or 30 years ago, But to live on the taste of today, to know that you are good. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I'm going to invite our deacons now to make their way to the front and start preparing the elements and begin to pass them out. And as they begin to come down here, let me just say, as I always do, love you all. Thanks for listening. And as we come into the Lord's Supper, we're going to take time to remember what Christ has done for us. We are literally, physically, and figuratively going to taste and see that the Lord is good. If you're a Christian and you've been baptized as a demonstration of your faith to receive him, we invite you to join us. You don't have to be a member of Westgate to participate in this ordinance. It's not a sacrament. It's not a part of our salvation. It doesn't secure or solidify or strengthen our salvation. It's simply something that we do as an ordinance, something that was ordered by Christ, that is a part of our faith to declare that we believe that he is good and he is our savior who has redeemed us and he is our only hope. So help one another out. Some, some people have missed from time to time that there is a wafer underneath the juice. It's all together. Just gently unscrew the juice off the top and take the wafer and drop it in your palm and then put the juice back in that, that other cup so it won't spill. Help each other to get it. Hold the tray. That's part of why we take communion together. So we do it together to be reminded of our community of faith. So take some time now and pray. Just think about the goodness of God, what he's done for us. Join me in a word of prayer. Father, thank you for your love, for your many blessings. Thank you for your salvation through Jesus Christ. And Father, as we partake in the Lord's Supper today, we do so in remembrance of you, who gave your only begotten Son, that we may have everlasting life. Thank you for our church and what it means to each of us. Thank you for our congregation. And help us as a church to continually reach out in the community to those that may not know you. We ask all these things in our name. Amen. It's interesting that God has given us this incredible gift to remember that he is good. To remember that he is so good that he gave himself so that we could experience eternal life. And it's interesting that today I see it a little bit differently. I'm reminded that this is a temporary gift that he has given us to remember him. I was trying to wonder about the time when my mother-in-law took the Lord's Supper for the last time. Because she's taken it for the last time because Jesus said do this in remembrance of me. She knows who Jesus is and she's right in his presence and they don't need to have the Lord's Supper in heaven just so we'll remember. This is for us now. And that's why Paul would write to the church at Corinth, those young Christians trying to figure it out and they were making a mess of it, quite frankly. They so you need to remember what Jesus said on that night. He said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. What if this was the last time that you took the Lord's Supper? Would you truly remember that this is his blood that was spilled for you? And that's why he would say as often as you drink this until you get to be with me, drink it and remember, taste, and see that I am good. During this time of worship, you may have made a decision that you would like to share with our church, with our staff. Maybe you want some direction or guidance and decisions, either to follow Christ or to become a church member or someone to pray with you. Whatever that might be, know that you can meet us out at the Connection Center in just a moment. We're going to briefly sing the song together as a church family, as our benediction. And then you can meet us out there, and as Jeff alluded to earlier, just bring a communication card with your name and phone number. We'll have a conversation together. I love y'all. Let's stand together.
1: And on that day, we'll join the resurrection and stand beside The heroes of the faith, with one voice, a thousand generations, sing worthy is the lamb who was slain. the Hymn of Heaven this week to all you come in contact with. Have a great week.